Hello, and welcome to Sobercast. We provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in a podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting Sobercast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar two into the virtual basket. Also, if you're a member of NA or have friends that are, please tell them about our other podcast, NAPOD. NAPOD features NA speakers and workshops in the same format as Sobercast. We upload a new speaker every day, and it's easy to subscribe by searching for NAPOD, N-A-P-O-D, all one word, on any podcast player app, or go to NAPOD.XYZ if you'd like to listen online. Hope you enjoy the podcast and have a great day. My name is Liz, and I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date is July 21st, 1995. Um, I would would like to thank the committee for asking me to come and join you. This is actually a roundup that I've always wanted to attend and have never had the opportunity, so I'm super excited to be here. Thank you so much. And thank you to Mary and Christine, too, for taking such good care of me since I've been here. 2 a.m. they picked me up from the airport. Can you believe that? It's very nice. Um, All right, so I guess I'll tell you a little bit about what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. Um, I grew up in California, in the Bay Area. Um, I have a huge family. I have five brothers, a sister, and... At this point, all of them are married with children, so we're, it's quite a family reunion when we all get together. Um, and from a very, very young age, I, I mean, really my first thoughts um, are of not feeling a part of and not belonging. Um, I really do feel as if I was born with this disease um, and definitely experienced the ism far before I take my, took my first drink. Um, That feeling of not belonging and not feeling like I fit was only compounded. Um, My family, I love them dearly, and through the last 15 years of my sober journey, um, what we look like as a family has changed quite a bit. But um, one of my earlier recollections is of my parents having a conversation about how having me in the home at seven years old was uh, too much for their marriage and to much strain on our family and they openly discussed finding an apartment for me to live in with nannies to take care of me. Um, Then my mother got pregnant again and that kind of got put on the back burner but you know so from like seven years old like even in my own family it was reinforced that I didn't have a place in this world and um, I didn't really know how to deal with that. Um, when I was nine years old, we moved to the Napa Valley, and um, I became the sole caregiver of my two younger siblings. Um, and I also started drinking, so bad timing, really, on <laughs> uh, on that one. Um, but my first drink, I was nine years old. I made immediate friends with this girl named Audrey in the fifth grade, and um, her parents were pretty absent, similar to mine, but for very different reasons. They had a hard time staying out of jail. Um, and we became fast, fast friends. So one of my first weekends in 
the fifth grade, I went over to her house and we had this brilliant idea to share a fifth of vodka and drink a two-liter bottle of Pepsi with it. Um, we did. We polished off the whole fifth of vodka. We were about this tall. Um, and I don't really remember what happened that night. I remember at one point I took off all my clothes and was running around her house. I remember vomiting all over their brown shag carpeting. We had been eating a ton of candy, like red hots, and it was all pink for some reason. So I puked up pink all over their shag carpeting, and uh, it was still there, <laughs> like when I went to rehab six years later. Um, yeah. Um, so yeah, kind of a disaster. You know, I blacked out. I have no idea what I did with the rest of the night. But uh, I woke up the next morning, and my whole body hurt, and I thought it was the best thing in the world. I couldn't wait to do it again. And um, from that point forward, I drank as much as I could, as often as I could. And um, in California, I don't know what it's like here, but um, they sell hard alcohol in grocery stores. So it was actually fairly easy to come by. You just, you know. Nobody expects a nine-year-old is going to be pocketing fifths of hard alcohol. Um, so it was pretty. It was fairly easy to drink on a regular basis. Um, my, I don't know. I mean, smoking was the same way. I've never done anything slow. <laughs> um, Smoking was very similar. I don't know where I got the idea that smoking cigarettes was a good idea. Definitely not reinforced in my family. I was walking to school one day. I picked up a Mar there was a Marbo Light 100 laying on the sidewalk. I felt like God had left it there for me. I <laughs> picked it up. I was kind of into pyro stuff at that point, and so I had firepower on me. I smoked that cigarette like I was born smoking, and I went to the store and stole a pack, and, you know, unfortunately haven't stopped since. But... Um, you know, like everything in my life has been that way. Um, so my drinking progressed pretty normally, I suppose. Uh, not really so much for a nine-year-old, but as alcoholism goes, it was, you know, fast and furious. Um, when I was 11 years old, I had to have major surgery, and I was in a wheelchair for a year. I have a bone disorder, and they had to do some things to try to fix my body so I could keep walking. You know, walking's good. I like that. Um, so I was in a wheelchair for a year, and with that came an unlimited prescription of Vicodin. And I discovered that Vicodin worked a lot better when you uh, washed it down with vodka. Um, so that was my life for about a year. I drank away the physical pain. I drank away the emotional pain. I did not want to feel. Um, I couldn't stand to be in my own skin. Um, I had a really hard time talking to people and interacting with anyone. Um, and I just felt lost and alone, you know. And uh, when I got out of that wheelchair, there was no stopping me. Uh, I promptly began running away from home. Um, I started getting arrested when I was 12 a lot. That was kind of the first warning sign to my parents. They... Uh, you know, it's it really important to them to have, they really wanted to have this perfect household. You know, we moved into a white Victorian house with a white picket fence, and we had cats and a dog, and my mom's a teacher, and my dad works with law enforcement, and they just, they really wanted the American dream, you know, the perfect American family, and uh, I was not having any of it. Uh, 
So I got arrested for the first time when I was 12. Um, somewhere between 12 and 14, I was in and out of juvenile hall. I was in and out of mental institutions, psych wards. I um, attempted suicide on a number of occasions, and really my only purpose in life at this point was to drink and use. Um, I, somewhere around 13 years old, ran away from home and moved into a cemetery. I lived in the, yeah, I lived in the Robert Mondavi Mausoleum in the Catholic Cemetery in St. Helena, um, California. And uh, dead people don't talk to you, you know. I, I, I wasn't really going to school anymore. Um, yeah. I, uh, I, you know, I just I couldn't show up for life. I didn't know how to do that. Um, the few classes I went to my freshman year in high school, you know, <laughs> by this time I was uh, doing so poorly in school that they put me in the books on tape English class. So it was me and the other kids that couldn't read, basically, you know, were either... English was their second language or were just as delinquent as I was. And, um, you know, I listened to Romeo and Juliet. I remember, I still remember part of the book, so, you know, I guess that worked. <laughs> I can recite some of it still. Um, but that was really all I remember from my freshman year in high school. Um, for the most part, I hung out in the cemetery and I drank and used as much as possible. Um, I got into a lot of fights. I was a scrappy little kid, which was funny because I weighed like 82 pounds when I got sober. Um, at the same height, I'm 5'4". I was 5'4 then. I'm still 5'4". Um, but I weighed for uh, 50 pounds less than I do now. Um, I was a skeleton. You know, my skin was sometimes white, sometimes yellow. Uh, my bones protruded from my face. My face was sunken in. I was walking bones, you know. Um, you know, I did a lot of crazy stuff. I was a horrible member of my family. My parents used to have to nail the windows shut on the house to keep me in their attempts to keep me in. Um, I would break windows to get out. They'd move furniture in front of the door to try to keep me safe, and I just wasn't having it, you know, like I went to any lengths, any lengths to get out of myself and to not feel. Um, I just could not show up for my life. And um, somewhere around the time, uh, right after my freshman year in high school, I had been arrested one too many times and the court system got a little tired of seeing me. And I uh, went to court and I was looking at two years in juvenile hall or two years in a treatment facility. And between my parents and the judge, they decided that I could indeed be rehabilitated. Uh, so they sent me away. I, of course, was not really into that so much, so I ran away again. And I uh, devised this grand plan to finally, for real, end my life. And... Um, after I made up my mind to do so, I went back to my parents' house to uh, say my goodbyes, basically. Basically tell them how horrible they were. <laughs> and people in at my disaster of a life was all their fault, which none of that was true. But that's, you know, in my overdramatic 14-year-old mind, that seemed like the right step to take. So I went home, and uh, <laughs> no one was there. Uh, so, <laughs> so I sat down on the couch, and I was, 
loaded out of my mind, and I sat down and passed out. And uh, when I came to, there were people there to take me away. So I got on an airplane and flew to uh, Condon, Montana. Well, no, I guess at that point it was uh, Thompson Falls, Montana. Um, I spent three months in a placement program. And uh, at the end of that three months, they decided, yes, indeed, I was not ready to reenter society, and I needed some more serious lockdown sort of help. Um, so they shipped me off to a center in Condon, Montana, uh, and I was there for almost two years. Um, Condon, uh, do, any, do any of you know Condon, Montana? <laughs> no, there's Liquid Louis. I believe that's still there. There is a taxidermist, and there is a gas station slash grocery store slash restaurant. Like all-in-one, you know, like an all-in-one sort of a deal. You go to the counter, and they make you really great breakfast sandwiches, actually, if you're ever driving through. Um, but, you know, that's it. So a ways from Condon, there was a treatment facility, and it was run by five members of Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, that's where my journey with you guys started. I... Uh, didn't do anything when I got there. You know, I had really long, at that point, stringy, gnarly hair. Like, I didn't know how to bathe. I didn't know how to eat. Um, you know, for like the first six months I was there, we, like, our, our food was regulated, and I had not put anything real into my body for so long. I just puked up everything I ate at the table every day for about six months um, until my system got readjusted, I guess. Um, and I didn't do anything. I put my hair down on my face. I wouldn't talk to you. If you spoke to me, I would swear at you. Um, I couldn't tell the truth. If you asked me a direct question, I wouldn't answer. Um, I was, I was dying, you know, like at this point I was an untreated alcoholic. You know, I didn't, you took away my booze and you took away my drugs and I didn't know what to do with myself. Um, I really felt like I was going to explode. Uh, and I didn't want to hear anything you had to say to me. And for some reason, uh, it was around Thanksgiving time, and um, they sat down and they were like, look, if you want to die one day at a time, that's your business, but you don't get to do it here. So you either need to make a decision that you're going to work the program and pick up some tools and practice the solution or you're going to finish out your time in juvenile hall. And the funny thing was the whole time I was there, that's all I wanted. All I wanted was to go to juvenile hall. I just wanted to let them let me sit in a cell and rot and go about my business as soon as I got out. And for whatever reason, when they presented that as an option to me, I said, okay. And I looked at this woman, Deb, and I asked her for help. And, um, Deb became my first sponsor. Um, now, we opened the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and none of it made any sense to me at all. I, you know, hadn't read in quite some time. I was bad at it. <laughs> um, comprehension was not, it just wasn't there for me. You know, it was still just super cloudy and foggy and, um, so we put the big book back down and we practiced reading first. Um, and eventually we picked it back up and she's like, all right, we're going to go word by word. If you don't understand something, ask and I'll explain it to you. She got out a dictionary 
and we started reading. And um, when we got to the first step, I did not at all have a problem admitting that I was alcoholic. Like, I was pretty clear that when it was me and one other girl drinking the way I drank in elementary school, that I did not have a normal relationship with alcohol. Like, that made sense to me. I had no no qualms about admitting that I was alcoholic. I um, did, however, have a really difficult time with admitting that my life was unmanageable. You know, the life that I had led was the only one I had known. You know, like, I didn't really understand that I could do it any other way. Like, that was fine for you guys, but I was incapable. Um, and it took me a while to understand, you know. Um, finally, we got through that. When we got to steps two and three, I had a really difficult time with God, as I'm sure many of you can relate to. Um, the only God that I had known was the God of my grandparents, and my grandparents told me I was going to hell when I was about three years old. So I was pretty sure that I didn't want that God in my life, that that was a God that could not help me. Um and uh, so I had a hard time, you know, and Deb was like, well, can you believe that I believe that a power greater than me restored me to sanity? And I was like, yeah, you know, like, yeah, I can believe that. And she was like, all right, here's what I want you to do. And we opened up the book to the spiritual appendix and we read through it. Um, I'm going to share part of that with you today because these three paragraphs saved my life. Most of us think this awareness of a power greater than ourselves is the essence of a spiritual experience. Our more religious members call it God consciousness. Most emphatically, we wish to say that any alcoholic capable of honestly facing his problem in the light of our experience can recover, provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. We find that no one need have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery, but these are indispensable. And Deb looked at me and she was like, all you got to do is practice those three principles. Practice willingness, practice honesty, and practice open-mindedness. Can you do that? You know, at this point, I was still lying. You asked me what color the sky was, I would tell you green. Like, I could not, I, I couldn't tell the truth. Um, and I made a commitment to practice doing just that. And she was like, all right, so what color is the sky? And I was like, blue. She's like, okay, let's do this. I was like, okay. So then I started on my fourth step. And um, that, you know, I, <laughs> my first fourth step was over 300 type pages. <laughs> <laughs> I really was terrified of doing a fifth step, you know, like I had never experienced unconditional love in my life. And I thought for sure if I told another human being all of these things, all of these resentments, all of these things that I had done, all of these situations I had been in, that um, she would walk away, you know, and then what do I do? Um, so I just kept writing, you know, I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and, uh, I finally had nothing else to write and I was like, all right, I guess we'll do this fifth step. Um, so like two months later when we finally finished the fifth step, um, yeah, um, I looked up and I, you know, through tears and whatever, it was incredibly difficult to get through reading all of it. Um, 
I expected Deb to not be able to look me in the eye, to not see love in her face, you know? And I looked up and she was like, you know, thank you for sharing that with me. Thank you for keeping me sober. I love you no matter what. And uh, that changed my life. And your love changed my life. Um, what happened for me was for I, I, I was able to look at myself in the mirror for the first time in my life. You know, I, uh, I was able to build on a foundation to have relationships with other human beings. You know, I'd never been able to do that before. And um, that's what that experience gave me. We did the sixth and seventh step, and um, I was real clear at that point on what my defects of character were. Um, and Dad gave me another gift, which he had me do in addition to listing out my defects and becoming willing to have God remove those, was she also had me come up with a list of assets. You know, at that point in time, like, I was not able to see a single decent quality about myself. And that woman sat across from me, and she told me what she saw in me. And she had me write those things down. And in addition to the things that she saw, she was like, even if you don't see these things in yourself right now, you need to write in a list of the person that you want to be. Like, what are qualities of the person that you want to be? And um, I did that. So in addition to prayer for the removal of my defects, I also thanked God for my assets. Um, and I prayed every day for years. I mean, I still... This is part of my regular prayer regiment, but uh, prayed for God to help make me the woman he wanted me to be. Um, and it was that simple, you know. My first eighth step, I, uh, you know, just took my fourth step and wrote out a list of all the people I owed amends. And um, I got let out. They let me out of that place for two weeks in order to make my amends. And um, so I flew back to California. Before I left, I had written letters, I had set up appointments with people, um, you know, like done the footwork to make sure that it was okay with people that I show up and give amends for those that I did in person, um, set up meetings with store managers that I had stolen from, um, came up with a plan to pay those people back, you know, like did all of that footwork, and then I went out and I had two weeks and I just did it. And that was another huge gift for me in early sobriety because I was not able to sit in fear, you know, like that's. That's my MO. I'm afraid, and I don't take action. And um, I didn't I didn't have a choice. I had two weeks. I had to get them done. I couldn't go back if I had, didn't have them done, so I just did them. And um, what doing my ninth step enabled me to do was to look you in the eye. You know, like I no longer had to walk down the street with my head down. I no longer had to keep my hair in my face. I could ask you how you were doing, and I could care about what you said back to me. And... Um, you know, because I wasn't holding on to all of that anymore. Like, I wasn't afraid that you would figure out who I really was. Um, so I went back to the treatment facility and finished out my time. Um, I practiced 10, 11, and 12 to the best of my ability while I was there. Um, and on the day that I was let out to return to California, I really did not want to go back at that point. You know, like, life had become comfortable. Like, I found... I found a freedom, you know, like I felt free for the first time ever, and I was terrified to go back out in the real world. Um, but it was my time. And Deb looked at me, and she was like, you know, I'm pretty sure that you're going to die. And uh, 
that's not really what I expected her to say to me on my way out the door, but it really was the best thing she could have said, you know. Because um, what happened for me because of that, it, fear was a motivator. You know, I went back to California and I found the three meetings in St. Helena that existed a week. And uh, I went. My parents were not so excited that I came back and was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. They, until I had about 10 years, uh, wouldn't acknowledge that I was in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I used to get grounded. I'd have to sneak out of my house to go to AA meetings. (laughs) True story. You know, but Deb told me I had to go to any lengths or I was going to die, and that's what I did. I went to any lengths, you know. Like, I went to meetings that, you know, people weren't so stoked that I was there. I was 16 years old at that point, and almost everybody in the room was 50 years old or older. Um, You know, I got a lot of, like, oh, are you so cute, you little alcoholic? And I got a lot. I got a lot of, you know, I spilt more than you drank, a lot of, like, that kind of stuff. And... Luckily, between the fear that Deb motivated in me and my resentment at the people who said things like that to me, (laughs) um, I showed up every meeting every week, you know. Um, Another amazing thing happened for me there. I mean, I got a sponsor. I raised my hand for commitments. Eventually, they gave me one. Um, And this woman, Valerie, went to an area assembly and. At that area assembly, they were talking about um, needing younger members of Alcoholics Anonymous to take meetings into youth treatment centers. And uh, Valerie raised her hand at that assembly to volunteer for that, and she was like, ooh, we got one. <laughs> and she came back, and she was like, guess what, kid, you're taking AA to rehab. And I was like, oh, okay. So once a week, every week, Valerie and I would go to different treatment centers in the area and bring an AA meeting, and she'd load me up in her car, and this one was full of, I was going to, mm-hmm. she was, energy. <laughs> um, amazing, amazing light in her life, you know, like AA had, yeah, it just oozed out of her pores. Um, she had a cigarette hanging out of her mouth and she drank more coffee almost than I did, almost, not quite, I drink a lot of coffee. Um, and she just was on fire for service with Alcoholics Anonymous, and I learned a lot from her. Um, nine months after I got back to California, I had finished high school, and I you know, was working jobs, and it was time for me to go. My parents were also not excited about that. They uh, felt like I owed them the time I had taken away from the family. And um, I said, that's nice, but if I stay here, I think I'm going to get loaded. So I loaded up a suitcase, and I hopped on a Greyhound bus, and I moved to Southern Oregon and went to college. I uh, was enrolled in Southern Oregon University mostly because the husband of the woman that saved my life told me to go there, and I said, okay. You know, like I learned really early on that I just do what I'm told here, and everything seems to work out all right. So uh, that's why I went to school there. It was also the closest place outside of California, which seemed really attractive to me at the time. I mean, it's like 30 minutes over the border between, (laughs) but, you know, outside of California. Um, And I went there, and what happened for me was uh, I looked for a in Southern Oregon, and I couldn't find you. Um, I had called in a group and asked for meetings, and when I'd show up at the location, there was no meeting happening, like it had closed down or moved. So 
keep your meeting information updated, please. Um, <laughs> it's helpful. Uh, so it was like three months, and I hadn't been to a meeting or seen another alcoholic, and I was walking across school campus, and I saw a circle and triangle on the back of a woman's car, and I wrote her a novel, just a, you know, more of a novella. Um, <laughs> and I was like, please help me. Like, I, I, please tell me you're really in AA, and you didn't just buy this car with a sticker on it. And <laughs> You know, like, I really could use a meeting or at least a conversation with another alcoholic. You know, please, please, please call me. And it's like two or three pages long. Um, and she did. And it, she, again, stuck me in her car and took me to AA, you know, and I found you guys again. And you saved me again. And, uh, you know, same deal. Got a sponsor. I worked the steps. I got a service commitment. I... Um, went to my first conference like this, the Roundup, the Rogue River Roundup. Uh, it was phenomenal. Like, just the joy that you all have is so inspiring. Um, and I was only there around nine months, and then I decided Ashland was too small, so I uh, hopped in my friend's car and moved to Portland, Oregon. I didn't really expect to stay there. I thought I would end up in Seattle, you know, like I was a grunge kid. It was the early 90s when I did most of my drinking and using, and uh, I just thought Seattle was where it was at. So I, uh, but I stopped in Portland, and you know, 10 years later, I was still there. Never made it to Seattle. Um, and what I found in Portland was people my age getting sober. I didn't know that people my age got sober. I kind of thought I was the only one, you know, and. Uh, I remember walking into the basement of the Portland Delano Club, and there were probably 150 alcoholics in there who were all between the ages of 15 and 25. And uh, I finally felt like I was home, you know? Like, you loved me, you made me feel safe, and now I was finally home. And um, I heard about this thing called Icky Paw. they were talking about and to be real the young people terrified me you know like I was stoked that they were there but I realized that I had absolutely no tools to build relationships with any of them like I never had pure friends you know ever and uh, so I had to learn how to do that and you held my hand through it um, my sponsor at the time I was voicing all of these resentments to her about young people, you know, like, I got hit on in meetings, rude, don't do that. Uh, <laughs> you know, that had never been a problem, because I was like 40 years younger than everybody else in AA at that point, you know, so uh, I didn't know what to do with it, and my sponsor was like, well, you have two choices, you can either check out, or you can jump in the middle of it and create the fellowship you crave, so what's it going to be? Um, and I was like, well, when you put it that way, fine. So I joined the Kipa Big Committee and um, made some of the closest friends I have ever had, you know. Um, Ikipa taught me how to balance a checkbook. They taught me how to negotiate contracts. They taught me how to fight with my friends and still be friends after. That, like, a disagreement doesn't mean that I never talk to you again. You know, it's just a disagreement. It's cool. We're all human. We can have different opinions and ideas and uh, still love each other anyway. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I learned a lot going through that process. Um, I love something else. There were there's a period in my life, like my late teens, and well, most of my life, I've actually I've really enjoyed traveling. I've traveled a lot. Um, when I was 17, I made my first trip to Russia, and I fell in love, hopelessly, hopelessly in love with the country of Russia. Um, don't ask me why. I didn't even want to go in the first place. I just kind of ended up there. And when I woke up in the morning, I realized I was in love with the place. Um, and so when I was 20, I was like, why not move there? You know, Someone suggested it to me. I'd been whining about it and not taking any action for a long time about how I wanted to get back and spend some time. And they're like, then go. Do it. You know, like... You're sober. Go live your life. Um, I was like, oh, oh, okay. So I did. I picked up at 20 years old, and I moved to Vladimir, Russia. And um, I had saved up 3,000 whole dollars, which seems like so much money to me. And uh, it actually lasted me 14 months. Uh, so... What I did when I was there, again, I was in another situation where I couldn't find you. Um, I went to Russia with my big book, this one, right here, and uh, some speaker tapes and some copies of The Grapevine and God. And uh, three or four months in, which is about my tolerance, I've discovered, uh, I felt like I was losing my mind, and I found this place that was calling them, found a meeting that was calling themselves Alcoholics Anonymous. However, there were no steps. There were no traditions. There was no way literature. Um, there was this guy <laughs> who sat in front of the meeting hall and um, gave direction to people about how to stay sober. Of course, nobody was actually staying sober. Um, so that was a problem. You know, uh, He invited guests uh, one of the night that I was there, there was a doctor who was then selling pills at the meeting. Uh, and the thought was, if you took these pills and you drank, you would die instantly. So that was her speech. That was her, like, gift to the room. Like, this will sober you up. Um... But two of the guys who were there came up to me after the meeting. They were like, where are you from? Like, I, you know, you're not Russian, clearly. And uh, I was like, oh, America. And they were like, oh, you know, and had questions about that. And um, they were like, what's AA like, you know? And in my broken, broken Russian, I hardly spoke any at this point, um, tried to explain it to them. And uh, finally, the three of us decided to just start a meeting. So we went to Moscow, we got on the train, we went to Moscow, and we visited Constantine at the GSO in Moscow, and bought a bunch of big books in 12 and 12s, and sat down with my English big book on one side and a Russian big book on the other, and I took these two guys through the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, uh, You know, they saved my life. Again, you guys saved my life. And uh, as far as I know, that meeting is still there. It was a couple years ago when I went back to visit. Um, and the year after I moved, they asked me to do the same thing with traditions, you know. So, again, we sat down, the three of us, and I broke out the 12 and 12, and we went through the traditions word by word. And um, they 
<laughs> yeah, I still can't believe it. There, there was another guy that came um, at the beginning stages of that meeting, and um, you know there are other people that came in and out that did it. But one of these two traveled twice a week, every week, three hours by train just to come to the one AA meeting because it was the closest one there. You know, um, that kind of dedication and willingness is so beautiful. Um, so I ran out of money and I had to come home and uh, when I got here Portland had been awarded the International Conference of Young People in A so uh, I got straight on the host committee I got to serve as the program chair I also got super involved in general service my time on and off in Portland I had uh, been a GSR, an alternate GSR, GSR again, an alternate DCM, an alternate DCM again, <laughs> a DCM, I think I did that twice too. You know, like it just kind of kept going through the cycle. I fell in love with a service. I, it is so awesome that every single one of us has a voice in the future of this fellowship. Um, just how AA functions is it blows my mind. I mean, the whole world should operate this way. Nothing would get done, but uh, <laughs> there would be peace and unity. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I love it. I love the behind-the-scenes work. I love the committee work. I have such a huge passion for it. I just don't even... I'm a nerd. You know, like, I read the service manual for fun. I love it. There's actually someone who drove up from Portland to hang out with me while I was here this weekend. And um, while she was detoxing one time, we sat up all night. Oh, it was like three or four hours, and we read the service manual while she was detoxing. <laughs> it was awesome. Uh, see, she's sitting right here. She's still sober. It works. Uh, <laughs> I love her. Um yeah, so Portland, I don't really know what else. What time am I doing on time? Any time I need. Uh-oh, you guys are in trouble. Um, so I was, we hosted Ikipot. It was amazing. Got super involved in general service. Um, and then one day I was sitting at, like in an assembly meeting and um, our delegate and our chair, area chair at the time, um, read this job description, sort of this shout out for um, GSO was looking for appointed committee members. Um, and both of them turned to my table and stared at me and indicated rather strongly that I would be applying. <laughs> um, I had no idea what that job was. You know, there's like a paragraph about it in the service manual, but other than that, I had no idea what I was doing, but uh, Dave and Bruce told me to apply, and like I said, in AA, I've learned that I just do what I'm told and everything works out, so uh, I went up and met with them after the assembly had finished, and we, uh, I applied. I filled out the application and applied, and um Heaven forbid they actually called. <laughs> uh, I was really surprised that that happened. I uh, had a deep love for Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, after I got that phone call, I was then incredibly terrified that I would then be rejected by AA. Um, 
you know, but I did a lot of inventory about it, and uh, they did ask me to come out for an interview, and I flew out to New York and interviewed for the position of appointed committee member on the Trustees Committee on Literature, and um, it was the most terrifying experience of my life. I uh, did a lot of prayer, and I sat there before a panel of people, and we talked about uh, AA experience, committee experience, working the steps. We talked about traditions. We talked about uh, my professional life. Um, we talked about everything. It was actually, in <laughs> hindsight, it was an amazing conversation. <laughs> but at the time, I thought I was going to pee my pants. Um, and I walked out of the office, and I'm like, I have no idea what I said. Uh, I looked up to every single one of those people that were sitting in that room, and um, I didn't think I was going to get it, but I was so grateful to be given the opportunity to be a part of AA in that way. And uh, the next day I got a phone call inviting me to serve as the appointing committee member for the Trustees Committee on Literature, and I accepted. Um, it, was super, it was super amazing four years. Um, part of what they were looking for is were what prompted, I guess, me to interview was they had just uh, finished the revision of the uh, young people's pamphlets and they looked around the table and realized that uh, no one was even close to young. So they were creating this pamphlet and nobody had current AA experience with being young and a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. So um, part of that experience was being able to offer that perspective, you know, like through years of being in service to AA, like I got to carry your voice and it was such a privilege. Um, yeah. The love that our trusted servants have and the dedication that is there to carry your voice is there's nothing like it in the world, you know. Um, somewhere in there, I had invited my mother to uh, come with me to New York on a couple of occasions, and she had said no. And my second year serving, she agreed, um, which, as I mentioned, was, uh, you know, I just never thought she would go. You know, I've been over 10 years, and my neither one of my parents could acknowledge that I was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And my mother flew across the country, and she came to board weekend with me. She sat at dinner, and we sat at the table with Greg, who's the Sunday morning speaker and an amazing human being. Um, and my mom got to meet you guys, you know? Like, cool. <laughs> um, and she gets it. She actually immediately went home and tried to change her will to give AA a bunch of money. Um, <laughs> and uh, after that weekend, and I had to explain to her some of our traditions. Um, but she's into it, you know. And then the following that, she came with me to Wacky Paw. My mom and my two younger brothers came with me to a young people's conference. <laughs> Yeah, it was funny. Uh, <laughs> um, but they showed up, you know, through like 10 years of living amends. Like my family started to show up, and I never thought they would, and I didn't need them to, you know. Um, around the same time, uh, my parents also got divorced, and um, 
through that process, my father found Al-Anon. My dad has now been a working member of Al-Anon for the last three years. Um, you know, I have my family. I, they're crazy, you know, like, uh, an example. <laughs> uh, I, this is actually one of the more powerful experiences I've had in Alcoholics Anonymous and, uh, making amends to my mother, but, um, a living amends to my mother. But one time before this, it was actually like my last, one of my last few months in Portland, she came to visit me and we went out for lunch and we were sitting at a table in the really nice restaurant overlooking the city of Portland. And, um, my mom looked at me and she said, you know, we're having a conversation about alcoholism basically. And I was like, you know, I don't think we should talk about this. Like we've tried to talk about this in the past and it hasn't gone over so well. And, um, she kept asking questions and I was answering her and at the end of that conversation she looked at me and she said I should have let you die an alcoholic death and I uh, got up from that table and I walked away and I uh, told my mom that I loved her and I would see her later and I needed to go to an AA meeting and I went to an AA meeting and somewhere in that day I found forgiveness for my mother you know I was able to go home and hold my mom and love her anyway I realized that the relationships in my life have absolutely nothing to do with them it's all about me like what kind of daughter do I want to be today and how do I show up for that like you guys have taught me how to show up how to be the kind of employee I want to be how to be the kind of AA member I want to be how to be the kind of sponsor I want to be how to be the kind of employer I want to be I have employees today that's weird uh, you know, and like you taught me how to forgive my mom and just show up and be the kind of daughter, you know. Um, also through that experience, I was, my mother was diagnosed with cancer and through working the 12 steps and being emotionally available and present in my family, I got to go take care of my mom as she recovered from surgery, you know. Um, it was not easy. It was not pleasant. I was fairly certain if that had happened, you know, a few years before, I probably would have drank through the process, but I showed up and I went to AA and I was able to hold my mom's hand and show up for her through that, you know. Um, I've had so many gifts like that in my life. My brothers, making amends to my brothers was huge, you know, like I threw my younger brothers downstairs, I put cigarettes out on them, I hit them, I called them names, I kicked them, I let my friends abuse them, you know, I didn't stand up for them in any way, shape, or form, and it took my, the brother right below me in age about three years before I could hug him without him flinching, you know, and like, I'm going to my brother's graduation in two months from college, you know, like my brother's call today. They want me to be a part of their life, you know, and that's not because of me. That's because of you and God. Um, I also have had the opportunity to do a, to participate in a career that it blows my mind. I get paid to drink coffee. It's awesome. Uh, I, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's awesome. I, moved to New York, which is a place that I've always wanted to live because of that career. Um, I um, 
Yeah, I just kind of like kept making coffee, and then one day uh, they asked me to be in charge of stuff, and I was like, "Really? Are you sure about that? Like, I'm just making coffee here." And they're like, "No, like, will you manage this?" And then I managed the cafe for a little while, and then a year later, the owner of the company came to me and he was like, uh, "So, will you be the general manager of our company?" And I was like, "Uh." Oh, okay. I don't think I'm qualified, but if you want me to, I'll show up. And uh, you know, like fast forward five years, and I'm moving across the country. I've opened from from scratch like five cafes, and I'm moving across the country to expand our business to New York City. You know, and like all of that is from you, from just showing up um, and doing the next right thing. You know, and doing my best to practice these principles in all my affairs. I do not do it perfectly. I make mistakes all the time. You know, I still will sit on resentments, even though I know there's an easier, softer way. You know, like I know I can sit down and do a tenth step and pray for that resentment to be removed, and yet it feels so good to hold on to them sometimes. You know, <laughs> you know, like like I still can participate in justified anger. I'm still terribly afraid of most things. This is one of the most terrifying things I think I do on, for some reason, a somewhat regular basis, you know, and um, I thank you for that, you know, like the ability to show up and walk through fear only brings me closer to God and keeps me sober. And um, with that, I'm going to close. Thank you so much for having me here. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.